Sustainability Unwrapped, a conversational podcast about responsibility, ethics, inequalities, climate change, and other challenges of our times, where science needs practice to think about our world and how to make our society more sustainable one podcast at a time. We welcome our listeners to a new season of the podcast Sustainability Unwrapped, by the microphone, Anna from Hankin School of Economics. And our key theme for this podcast season is responsible organizing and how it can support building a more sustainable future. In each episode, we have invited and will continue to invite experts to discuss topics such as intersectional inequalities, cross-collaboration for responsibility, and much more than that. Today, we have a very interesting topic that I believe many of our listeners will find relevant for themselves. It's about social media bias. Uh, I actually checked that more than half of the world population uses social media, and I think this is indeed a really big number. So let's together investigate more on how the bias comes into being and how it impacts us, the users of social media, and of course, the world around us. To share their knowledge on this topic, we invited Anna Maranen and Mikko Vesa to our Hankin studio. Welcome. Hi, and thanks for having us today. So yeah, we're very happy to be here talking about social media and also what can perhaps be referred to as its so-called darker side. Yeah, yeah, thanks for the invite. Uh, as Anna said, we are curious about this kind of dark side of social media. And I suppose in this instance, it's in, in this is instance particularly how social media bias generates discrimination. Very interesting, and I like how you put it—the dark side. <laughs> Let's in the future refer to it like that. So, could you tell us a bit uh, more about yourself and uh, actually what brings you here today in terms of your research and uh, the work that you do around this topic? Uh, yeah. So my name is Anna Maranen, and I'm a doctoral researcher here at Hanken. Uh, My research focuses on the impact of social media across individual, organizational and societal levels. And I'm here today with Mikko Vesa to discuss the chapter we authored with Frank Denont in the book Transformative Actions for Sustainable Change, Responsible Organizing. So our chapter discusses uh, algorithmic bias in social media and the related questions of morality and responsibility it has sparked in the recent years. Really interesting. What about you, Mikko? Yeah, I am Mikko Vesa. I work as an associate professor here at Hanken. And uh, I've actually been researching this problem of our emerging algorithmic society for for some years now. And and in particular, how algorithms are involved in the kind of unraveling of our social fabric, either as echo chambers or conduits for hate speech. And I think to some fundamental bottom line, the kind of generation of distrust in the basic freedoms we have in our democratic societies. Whenever people introduce their backgrounds in our podcast, I have a feeling of, wow, like we've got real experts here. And of course, like you two, when you introduced your background, I'm really happy we can discuss this topic exactly with you. Uh, when I was preparing for this episode, I thought that, um, okay, what kind of... Uh, social media user I am and uh, I couldn't come to a better conclusion than just a basic uh, social media user I must say these days I've been trying 
am successfully trying to reduce my time spent with social media. And we can, of course, discuss that. Uh, but if uh, I go for social media, I usually explore Instagram or, for example, LinkedIn. So these uh, types of social media are easier to relate for me because I know how they kind of work and what's the functionality of them. Facebook, quite rarely. I think it's now going back in the days, but still sometimes. So perhaps Instagram is the place where I can be uh, stuck or it's like my guilty pleasure to go and check the feed over there. And uh, it would be interesting to know what kind of social media users you are. So could you tell more about, uh, if you would have to explain your social media user profile, what could it be? Yeah, well, what you said actually sounds a lot like how I use social media too, or at least how I use it on my free time. So I really kind of just try and keep up to date on my professional channels like LinkedIn, but I also do scroll my Instagram feed multiple times a day. Yes, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very easy to kind of get stuck on that loop. Uh, and then the kind of old school YouTube beauty community really is my guilty pleasure when it comes to social media. But I'm not that active on many of the other platforms. So I, I really think that there are just so many of them these days that you really need to choose because otherwise you will get too, too stuck mm -hmm. on the loop. Uh, but of course, I do research social media for work. So I do spend quite some time looking on different platforms and collecting data on them. And it's really interesting to kind of try and get this outside perspective on what goes on in social media, although quite challenging as well, because algorithms do make sure that my kind of research encounters with social media data are always somewhat personalized mm -hmm. too. And this is actually what made me interested in social media bias in the first place. And if I think about myself, I guess I was a pretty enthusiastic early adapter, but it was a long time ago. I have to admit that these days I've deleted all of my social media account, account expect, except for LinkedIn. And I think LinkedIn is, is anyways, it has such a limited focus. It's mm. in many ways a pretty artificial place because everybody is so professional. So you get a kind of a very plastic understanding of the world when you follow it. But at the same time, it can be useful for disseminating certain forms of knowledge at times. But I was thinking of an interview by Yuval Harari recently in Helsingin Sanomat in which he said that he actually is using a 90s mobile phone, like one of these mm. chocolate bars. And, and, he said, <laughs> and he said that the problem with, with smartphones and social media and stuff like that these days is that information becomes just noisy. Mm. So uh, I think there is a point in perhaps considering one's relationship with social media and, and is it actually giving you something meaningful my answer increasingly is no <laughs> yeah yeah and i feel you uh, I, I can definitely agree with this part about the noise like it feels like it's always there hanging in the background so at some point i can feel like i even becoming blind to that like i want to just kind of get rid of that noise on the background but um it seems like we are also quite uh, with Anna. We are more like similar uh, profiles, but I think like deep inside, I'm also moving to Mika's perspective on the social media because I do feel like I wanna maybe limit or at some point go away from social media. But uh, let's come back to the uh, social media biases. What could you please make it clear for what for us? What are biases in social media, and uh, especially why we are talking about this as a sustainability issue? 
Yeah, definitely. So like I mentioned, I have become much more aware of how social media platforms actually operate when studying these spaces. And there are definitely some elements to it which are a bit alarming. And bias definitely is perhaps one of the biggest ones of these um, alarming elements. So basically, in a nutshell, social media platforms largely operate on artificial intelligence or algorithms, which are these uh, decision-making technologies that run in the background of each platform. So algorithms basically collect and process user data, so things like clicks and searches, as well as biographical data, and then use it to predict users' future interests. So based on this processing, they then decide on what to show and not to show to the users. So essentially interaction between users and content as well as access to and visibility of that content are orchestrated by these algorithmic mm -hmm. tools. So examples of these are Facebook timelines, Instagram feeds and TikTok recommendations and basically just everything that makes up your personalized social media experience. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, so if you think about it from a sort of wider perspective, then these algorithms in social media, they curate our, what we see, so to speak. They impact on everything from how you see, how your search results look like to what kind of advertisement you're shown while you scroll through these platforms. And this curation is not without consequences and, and most importantly, it can be biased. What we mean it bias here is that algorithms can produce systematically skewed and unfair outcomes. For example, by customizing users' interactions with content and with other users, social media algorithms tend to steer people toward content that they likely that they likely will enjoy, or that comes from people who are similar to them, at least based on how the algorithm sees it. So in that sense, you could say that we are stuck in a comfort bubble constantly. We always get that which is very easy to choose. So your entire media diet becomes one big chain of Big Macs in that sense. And the consequence of this is that people get trapped in echo chambers, filter bubbles, and these are really difficult to break out of. So in that sense, you could say that algorithm, algorithms kind of raise barriers to accessing content and encountering other people that are outside one's own historical tra trajectory and to learn about views that are alternative to, to one's own. So um, uh, algorithmic bias can not only cause skewed outcomes, but it can at times even cause unfair and clearly discriminatory outcomes by, for example, systematically hiding certain content, like job ads, from groups like uh, the groups that we assume would not be relevant for the ads, such as women or minorities. I really like how you put it, the chain of Big Macs and the social media diet. So that's <laughs> exactly how I would uh, refer to it. So you might have been asked this question a few times. I, I would guess uh, when people know that you are researching the social media, but maybe I direct that question more to Anna because Mika said that he's now limiting his <laughs> yeah, use of social media. Anna, uh, would you say, since you have researched this area, how your personal... Um, level of awareness and how you look at the content in the social media has changed. Yeah, so unlike Mikko, I still am there yeah. <laughs> on the socials, but of course it has impacted the way I use them or the way I perceive them. Uh, so 
yeah, like I said, I have become much more aware of, of the fact that whatever I basically see or get recommended online is not at all random, but in fact, it's very much calculated based on the digital footprint I keep leaving through, mm -hmm. through the clicks I make there. So when I, for example, see an ad, I do often kind of think about why exactly it is shown to me. And very often I can track it down to, for example, my search history. So, for example, if I've, I've been looking for a dress uh, and I've been writing that in my search box, uh, I know that I will be bombarded by these dress ads in different platforms for, for a while. So this is where I think algorithms kind of work as intended. But where it gets a bit more problematic is when I'm recommended or shown something based on things other than my kind of direct click history. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I think an experience uh, a lot of uh, young young uh, females share is being really bombarded with these pregnancy and ovulation test advertisements on YouTube videos and basically everywhere. And when I know that I'm not searched for these kind of things or related products, and they still keep popping up on my feed, I kind of know that there is something more complicated going on mm -hmm. in there. And this is exactly the side of algorithms we discuss in our chapter. Yeah, and those ads can be very embarrassing sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially when you get exposed to the larger audience, like we said, when you show someone a video or something, and you get those really embarrassing ads. At least yeah. I feel that way sometimes. Yeah, I've had that happen to me when I've been lecturing and showing YouTube videos, and then they keep popping up. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can. I feel that. Yeah. Well, uh, both Mika and Anna, you talked about uh, technical e kind of a. Uh, technical side of the data processing and algorithms so is that the case so that's the biases are created by the as a result of data processing well in a way the answer is yes so algorithmic decision making is of course all about data processing so then algorithmic bias as well does emerge in and through these processes. Mm -hmm. But the picture definitely is larger than that, as the technology does not exist or operate by itself. But there is always human agency behind it. And it is the way in which that particular human agency kind of enters into and becomes a part of the algorithmic decision-making process, which then sparks or which can spark a bias in the first place. But Maybe Miko can explain this in a bit more detail. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bit like this, that algorithms are basically fed with or collect various data inputs from social media users. You know, your, your daily interactions, what you upload in your profiles, and they then decide on how to act based on this data. Uh, Bias can emerge at two moments in this process technically. Firstly, it can emerge during the collection and selection of historical user data. And here bias emerges through the assumption that this particular user data is somehow representative and can explain something accurate and meaningful about the users based, users based on their likes and clicks and other traces that they leave behind. It also comes with the assumption that your historical behavior would somehow accurately uh, predict what you want to do in the future, which is also a bit of a problematic idea. Secondly, bias can emerge during the processing of the data in, in basically a pattern matching calculus, because most of the things that we understand at profiling, uh, it's actually just technically a cluster analysis. 
Here bias emerges through the assumption that similarities in user data reflect similar similarities within the user group. And of course, neither of these two assumptions is false proof, and both of them are inherently human originated. So to put it very simply, social media bias is human bias automated through artificial intelligence. So artificial intelligence in itself has no morality, if you want to put it like that. What data algorithms are given, what they're supposed to prioritize, and how they are programmed to act on it are human decisions. Technically, we talk about algorithms always having a goal function. So basically, social media algorithm replicates the same human assumptions we have, which can and often are faulty and biased, and then they circulate around the vast social media space and systematically operate on those assumptions. And the meta problem that emerges out of this often is that because it's automated, because it's algorithmic, we start to believe it wouldn't have a human bias, but it actually always has. And well, since it's a, uh, if it is that way, then it's probably so difficult to grasp and actually have a like have a clear understanding how that kind of snowball appears of those algorithms and then it comes into bias. Uh, and I believe a basic user won't be like able to, on a daily basis, analyze their journey through the feed in a way that they, okay, this is probably the bias. <laughs> I know what to do. <laughs> so uh, I was thinking if we can get an example where we can walk a little bit through the journey and uh, to see where the social media would predict my interest, for example, as a social media user and uh, sort of to see the consequences of that. And my question here, we talked a lot about the dark side, <laughs> as we call it, but are there any like positive effects? Yeah, of course. So you're absolutely right that that's exactly what it, what it is that's so tricky about algorithms, because they are very difficult to grasp just because they are so kind of built into the operation operating logic of social media platforms and they're not made visible or explicitly explained to individual users like like mm -hmm. you and I. So because everyone can mostly see their own social media feeds, it's also very difficult to kind of compare them to those of others and understand how they might differ. So what I think is always the easiest way to kind of uh, explain what it means in, in practice is through examples. So perhaps the kind of simplest way to understand algorithmic decision making is through the tracking of clicks and searches. So for instance, when I write, write down black dress in my search bar or visit profiles or sites that are selling black dresses, the algorithm kind of then makes note of my online movements and assumes I want to see more black dresses. And this can, of course, be a very good thing, uh, as the algorithm is most likely right based on those movements, and it makes my search for the dress easier by providing me options. But there are, of course, other sides to this. So, uh, of course, making consumption this easy and even kind of pushing, uh, pushing towards consumption this way might not be ecologically sustainable. Mm -hmm. And then the other example I shared shows the kind of what I think is even more complex about algorithmic decision-making. So when I'm shown an ad for, for example, a pregnancy test, even though I haven't searched for one, it kind of indicates that the algorithm has used some other cues on why I might be interested in seeing that particular ad. And these can be, for example, some pieces of biodata or biographical, biographical data 
based on my social media profiles. So biodata refers to the so-called factual data of a user such as age, nationality and gender. But of course, there are two things here that can result in biased outcomes. So first, uh, biodata is not at all that factual, uh, but for example, algorithms can misassume a user's gender uh, and on the other hand, they can also incorrectly assume what biodata actually tells about the user. So, for example, that a woman of a certain age and gender would like to see ads for products related to family planning. So, this is just one example of how assumptions can feed into algorithms in a way which then produces biased and mm-hmm. skewed outcomes. Yeah, and in this situation, I also feel quite spied. But now we talked a lot in our examples about... Uh, individual person, individual social media user. And uh, previously we mentioned about this to be a sustainability issue. Do we know any cases where it has had a widespread impact on our society as whole? Well, yeah, if I build on the previous discussion, the Canadian scholar Wendy Chon says that the experience of using social media is wonderfully creepy. So it's wonderful in the sense that it seems to know something about us, but it's sometimes, at the same time, it's, it's, it's somehow offensive. So it's creepy, wonderfully creepy. And of course, when we start to take this then to, to, wider, to the wider sphere of society, it can have implications. And I'm thinking here, for example, about the quite well-known case with, with Cambridge Analytica in the first part of the of the 2010s, which was basically a case where an analytics company uh, illicitly collected social media users' personal data profiles and then used these for creating political profiling and and recommendations for sort of very targeted and at times very toxic campaign ads that were then successfully used, for example, by the vote a vote leave campaign in the UK uh, when the Brexit negotiations, uh, the Brexit uh, vote was going on, and, and as well in the successful uh, presidential campaign of Donald Trump. But at the same time, I think we're kind of seeing this across the political spectrum in the last 10, and 15, 10 to 15 years as uh, we see citizens beginning to retrieve information solely from sources that are affiliated with their existing political views and skipping alternative uh, uh, sources completely. And, and there is actually research on this that shows that these bubbles, for example, uh, within party blocks, uh, both in the US and Europe, are really, really taking place. And then, of course, when we take it to the extreme, we, we end up, for example, in, 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 in like a situation like we have in China, where information on the internet is constantly kind of algorithmically censored and monitored and entire perspectives or events even can be completely removed or at least attempted to be removed from the realm of public Mm -hmm. knowledge. And this is, of course, something that is possible because of this technology. And this has a sustainability implication, of course, because if you can promote narrow political agendas at the expense of citizens having a wider understanding of, of their world, then that becomes a problem. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So people miss out on the opportunity to see other perspectives. And uh, yeah, well, what are we currently doing with that? Like that's <laughs> the question that I want to ask after learning about this. So uh, 
what is it that we should be doing to manage this impact of bias? And uh, is it about perhaps regulations, would you suggest? Or does it actually, like, does the responsibility lie on the individual users like we are? What would you say? Definitely some big questions there. Uh, but yeah, social media bias is definitely something that's attracting increased attention because its impacts are starting to show more and more like the maybe not so wonderfully creepy examples Mika shared yeah. illustrate. So there are serious alarming things going on. Uh, but managing bias is of course very challenging because it is so built in and so automated into how social media platforms function. And it also poses some very big questions of, of agency, of morality, and of responsibility in a space where both people and technologies participate inter in interaction and kind of come together. And maybe at the very bottom of this is the question of who can actually be held accountable of the biases created and disseminated by social media algorithms. So whether it's the designers and programmers creating the algorithms, or the companies commercializing them, or then the uh, users interacting with the algorithms in the online space. Mm -hmm. So I'm inclined to think that the primary responsibility is held by those who have actual power over the use of algorithms on a given platform. So that is then the social media companies, because they are ultimately in charge of how algorithmic decision-making is both used and monitored, and also over the actions that follow if bias is detected. Yeah, I'm led here to think to sort of a truism that we hear a lot of these days, and that is that in today's world, you know, data data is kind of the same thing as power. Previously, people used to say that money is power and now data is power. And the way you understand data is not uniform in the world. We have, I would say that we have three emerging different viewpoints on data. And it comes down to the question of ownership of data. In the European Union, we have an idea that data is the, is the property of the individual. In the United States, we have the idea that data is the property of the companies. And in People's Republic of China, we have the view that data is the property of the government. And, and this kind of is, I think, something that is maybe pulling our world apart surprisingly much. But if we return to the question of, of, of the sort of big data companies, uh, Harvard uh, professor Emerita Shushana Zuboff uh, pointed out that it's important to realize that it's often in the interests of these data giants to portray the developments around social media as unavoidable and even largely desirable. And the thing that we first of all need to recognize is that this doesn't need to be like this at all. And to change the situation probably requires some kind of, I would even say, social sustainability transition shift. And, and in this part, regulation does become important. Uh, I would say that we are fortunate in this regard to be in the European Union today, which I think pursues the most citizen-friendly agenda in this regard compared to other parts of the world. But when we think about it on an individual level, I think it's good to remember it's insufficient to demand a transparency of data. There is so much data that transparency doesn't help. So what we should demand is rather an understandability of use so that we as human beings can understand what is being done to us with our data. So that in that regard, we should always demand the ownership of data 
And if that is not given to us, I think we should actively try to harass anybody who tries to profile us. So, for example, if you start to get ads that are completely ridiculous, you have succeeded. I, I'm getting there, but I laugh at my ads because they're so misplaced. So that means that they don't know who I am. Uh, that's not a perfect solution, but it's a step. And, and, and I think what is more important is that we should demand from our solutions that they allow us ourselves to construct how uh, we want ourselves to be portrayed to the outside world. Of course, because I mean, always human beings have been mimetic. We have been pretending a little bit about whom we are. But how we do that is something that we should be allowed to decide ourselves because we are also accountable for it. Well, this has been extremely interesting, and uh, I actually want to bring it back to our listeners. What would you recommend that uh, they could take away from this? Or are they better prepared to deal with it when they actually get exposed to that? So what would you say? Yeah, so awareness. I think that is kind of key from an individual user's perspective. So... Kind of being aware of these invisible non-human actors that are a part of our social media space and uh, that impact uh, upon our interactions in the social media space. So that's important to kind of just know that they are there. Uh, and I think just basically navigating social media and understanding why it looks like it does for you is much easier when you know that there is this logic to how it operates and that logic is based on continuous tracking of what you and others do online. Um, so then you can a bit better be prepared or, or you can know a bit better of the potential content and filter bubbles you might be trapped into. But of course, it is very difficult to, mm-hmm. for an individual user to to break out of those or, or even impossible. Um, but of course, I do think that the awareness of social media algorithms should not only be user's responsibility at all, but it's something that needs to be promoted on a societal level because social media spaces in general are so central in the contemporary world as sites for both business and and just for fun as well. I think it's essential to make sure that there is not only equal access to, but also kind of comprehension and literacy of these spaces and their features such as algorithms. So I think knowledge of algorithmic social media logic and its both opportunities and also its challenges should be made a part of basically any kind of digital media literacy initiative there Mm -hmm. is. Yeah, I agree. And I think people are now exposed to social media in a very early age. So the cultivating literacy and being conscious about what content you consume, I think this is definitely definitely the topic to discuss. So what about you, Mikud? Is there any takeaways you could... Yeah, when I'm even thinking about what we're talking here, I think there's this undercurrent that we're all becoming cynical about social Mm. media. So the question then becomes, what are the individual strategies that we could pursue? And I think if we examine this problem from the perspective of social sustainability, there could be two recommendations I could make. First of all, make certain you are in a dialogical relationship with your social media feeds. Uh, Challenge your feeds. Why are you seeing the, what you're seeing? Why are you seeing what you're seeing the way you are seeing it? And whose agenda does it benefit that you're seeing this? So we have to remember this. We are easily, we are trying to be seduced into a world 
where what we see being profiled about us is being told to us as a truth about us. But we have to remember that the profile, the picture that we see of ourselves is somebody else acting on us. It's not you. It's what somebody else wants you to be. So this is the first thing is that you have to ask yourself, why am I being shown this picture of myself? Secondly, I think it's important to ensure that social media is not your only and hopefully not even your primary source of information about the world. You need a richer a more nuanced understanding of the world that social media can give you if you wish to be an informed citizen of a democratic society. Something that I did here, for example, is that I've started to read paper newspapers once more. And the reason for this is simple. Why would I read my news online when what I'm seeing is based on what an algorithm thinks I want to see? That's not interesting for me. I read paper newspapers because that is a dialogue. There is somebody who is writing these news because they think I should be reading them, a chief editor. So it's a dialogical relationship. Somebody who makes the newspaper is saying to me, Mikko, I think you should be reading this, rather than having the easiest information available fed to me like a constant stream of Big Macs. <laughs> so these are my two takeaways. Be critical, dialogical, and look beyond social media. Yeah, yeah. I, I think this is absolutely valuable recommendation. Actually, I like your point about getting back to the paper because I, my, I have been uh, ordering one uh, magazine. Yeah, it has been an interesting journey to get away from, especially when we have the pandemic and uh, lots of news that uh, were really like demanding in a way to like go through. Like, uh, yeah, paper was my rescue in that in that, those times. So I kind of. I believe it's still going to be there, not, despite that we have the digital devices. Yeah, I got carried away, but <laughs> well, thank you very much. I think it's time to wrap up our conversation and uh, it was extremely interesting. But what I will take, will take away for myself from this discussion is that these days we are exposed to content and uh, influenced in a way that we might not be well aware of at all. Uh, it might be positive. Uh, my favorite example here is uh, developing business opportunities through Instagram. I've seen those uh, small scale businesses that reach out to big audience thanks to social media, uh, but also negative, like we discussed here, the dark side when uh, we feel the discrimination or excessive consumption of, of uh, products. But uh, yeah, that's the uh, end of our episode. And I just want to thank our listeners for staying with us. By microphone was Anna, your host for this season, and we genuinely hope you stay tuned for our next episodes. Bye.